We're uh, continuing our walk through the book of Jude. Last week, Pastor Aaron uh, started this off, just giving us kind of an introduction of who Jude was. And so just as a way of reminder, we're told that Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And we know that Jude is actually one of the half-brothers of Jesus. And so what I found interesting is in Mark chapter 3, we're told that Jesus' brothers and his mom do not really believe that he's the Messiah at that time. In Mark chapter 3, if you went there in your own time, you're going to see that as he's Doing his first miracles, he, he um, gets the 12 apostles that he chooses, and this crowd keeps gathering, and then his family sought, and it said his mother and his brother sought to go get him and said he's out of his mind, right? They were concerned for him, but yet something changes, because after his resurrection in the book of Acts chapter 1, what we're told is when Peter goes into the upper room with the disciples, it says they were all of one accord, meaning of the belief in Christ, and it's mentioned that among them was his mother Mary and his brothers, and so after the resurrection... His brothers believe in who Jesus actually claimed to be. And I, then it's fascinating to me that instead of Jude bragging, like Pastor Aaron showed us last week, he doesn't brag that he's the brother of James or the brother of Jesus. Instead, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look at verses 3 and 4, we're going to dive into why Jude wrote this letter. Verses 3 and 4 show us something that Jude had a desire to write a different letter. And then he felt compelled to write this letter. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. In the next weeks, we're going to see some Old Testament examples of um, God's judgment on sin, which are showing that these false teachers were obviously speaking something different. But if you would, open your Bibles with me. We're going to look at Jude, and then also I want you to put your finger on 2 Peter, because we're going to look at that a lot today as well. But if you would, stand with me in honor of God's Word. Let's read Jude. There's only one chapter. Look at verses 3 and 4 together. <coughs> there it goes. So, verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word and that we live in a time where it's readily available. God, I pray now that you would just speak through your word, remove me from the equation. God, give me uh, the lungs to just get through this. And God, I just pray that our hearts would be changed by your word. We want to give you the praise. May I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at these two verses, we're going to address two questions that come to mind, and we're going to see two things that Jude points out. And so the first question we have is, what happened? Again, look at verse 3. Beloved. Although I was eager, very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude was eager to write a different letter, one of encouragement about their common salvation that they had in Christ. When it says he was very eager, it means that he made every effort to do so. This is what he wanted to do. He made every effort to do it. But it says, I found it necessary to write something different. The word in the Greek, found it necessary, is a compelling need requiring immediate action. Now that makes sense. In our English, found it necessary, we get that. But when you study, sometimes we need to understand that the English word that the translators use, they might have had a different emotion thought in their mind than what we do. So sometimes when we read it, we say it so often, we miss it. So when you dive in a little bit more to the Greek, we find something about the emotion of this found it necessary. It, it speaks of a forceful, violent compulsion. And so what's happening here is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, though Jude wanted to write something different, we're told that he gets this forceful, violent compulsion to write something 
for there is a need that requires immediate attention. And so I love when you study the Greek. And again, it's not that the word in English isn't right, but we sometimes just think of it differently than maybe they have thought about it. There is this, I mean, serious need, this forceful, violent compulsion to write something different. So what happened? What changed so quickly that Jude went from wanting to write a letter of encouragement to writing a letter saying, contend for the faith? In order to fully understand, we've got to look at Second Peter a little bit. Pastor Aaron alluded to this, and like I said, I want you to put your finger there because we're going to go there a lot as well. But for, we need to understand the relationship between 2 Peter and Jude. If you haven't read 2 Peter, I hope some of you guys went and read it, but just so we can see, there is this striking similarity between these two letters. And so they'll be up on the screen. Both Peter and Jude, speaking of false prophets, notice what they say. 2 Peter says, "...who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Many will follow their sensuality." Jude says about them, they crept in unnoticed, who pervert the gospel, or pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Jude says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now they both have lists of Old Testament references showing God's judgment on sin. Those lists differ, however, about four of the six of those are exactly the same, and they're even in the same order. Notice. They both speak of the angels who sinned, Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, that they blasphemed the glorious ones, and they also fall into the error of Balaam. But if you'll notice, not only do they use the same ones, look at the order. Jude 1, 6, 1, 7, 1, 8, 1, 11. Peter 2, 4, 2, 6, 2, 10, 2, 15. That's striking to me. That jumps off the page when we see that. They also end their letters in the exact same way. 2 Peter 3, 3 says... That we should remember Jesus and his apostles. And notice this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Jude says the same thing, that we should remember what Jesus and the apostles said. And it says, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. The similarities between the two are striking. They just jump off at the page. And Pastor Aaron mentioned that some will look at this and they'll say, well, obviously, either Peter copied Jude or Jude copied Peter. Like, it's It's obvious. And what I want to ask, though, is should we care if they did or not? Would it matter if they did or not? And I would argue that it matters a lot. Because these skeptics run to this type of stuff, bringing the Bible down to the same level as man, and say they're just copying off each other. Someone got you know, a good reputation. They're just copying, blah, blah, blah. It all, they're all just saying different things, just you know, copying off each other. But we know that God doesn't waste words. We know that God doesn't choose to do something for no reason at all. Isaiah 55, 11, God says, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Peter tells us, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And as we continue to go back to 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So if God chose for one author to say copy from another one, there is a purpose to it. Now I'm going to show that I don't think that's what happened. But when we see something like this, we have to then ask, what is God trying to communicate? What is he choosing to do here? Because he doesn't waste words. So let's go back to 2 Peter. And again, I, just gotta admit, I wasn't here. I didn't get to ask Peter and Jude what they were doing. But if we look at the text, not in some hidden way, but in the plain reading, and we look closer, we're going to see something that I think is going to make significant um, 
just realization for us. Second Peter chapter 2. I want you to notice the tenses in which Peter says these things. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false, pro- false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. All future tenses. Now let's look at Jude. Notice the tenses. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our master, only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, Peter speaks in a future tense. Jude speaks in a past or present tense. Does this matter? I think it does because we're seeing something. And I, one of the ways that when I study the Bible, I go through every single word in the Greek. Not to think that the translators as if I'm something better and I could come up with a different word. But again, to see the emotion, to see what is their intent on why they chose a certain word. And in doing that, I found something else interesting. When Jude says, therefore, contend for the faith, that word contend is only used in Jude that's the only place in the Bible. That's significant because then we have a hard time, if it's only used once, to know for sure what it exactly means. However, this word is unique because Jude takes two words and puts them together. One word, and this is my transliteration of it, is agonizamia. And it's where we get the word agonize. That is the second word. That word is used all throughout the New Testament. It's written in all the letters that were written prior to this, and it means to agonize, fight, or contend, right? The second word that Jude puts in there, right in front of that, means it's epi, and it means focused on. Now, even in the word choice, what Jude is saying here is that I I felt necessary to write to you, appealing for you to focus on the fighting for your faith. Even in the word itself, it's pointing us back to something else. I could be wrong on that, but that, that, that seemed to jump off to me as well. So as we look a little bit closer, just by reading it, we see this future tense, And then this past or present tense between these two authors that God used to write his word. Why would it matter if Jude is pointing back to Peter or vice versa? Do we remember what we're told in the Old Testament about how to determine whether somebody's a true prophet or a false prophet in the Bible? Look at me with Deuteronomy chapter 18. They're being told, Moses is warning them of these false teachers. And they're asking, how do we know? So it says, and if you say in your heart, excuse me, how may we know that the word of the Lord was not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Jeremiah 28 says, here's how we can tell if it's a true apostle. When the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. So I don't believe Jude is copying Peter for the sake of copying. I believe Jude is proving that Peter is a true prophet of God. God's using Jude to point that my apostles are actually speaking my words. You know that because what he said has come to pass. That to me is amazing. It's not this idea, oh, they're just copying off each other, just whatever. No, God is doing something in that. When they use the same illustrations... Maybe, just maybe, Jude uses the same illustrations of the Old Testament that Peter does to fulfill the desire of Peter. Notice what Peter says about what his intent is in his letters. 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, 
though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now jump down to chapter 3 of Second Peter. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, I find this interesting because earlier in the year, me and my wife, we were just reading through the Bible, and we were randomly kind of going from book to book, and we read Second Peter, and it was a couple months later, we read Jude, and we were both like, whoa, wait a second, this sounds familiar. And as you go back and you look at that, now I got to imagine, because we know according to Scripture, we won't go there now, but the first century church devoted themselves to the single letter that they had way more than we do a lot of times. And I would have to imagine that as they get this letter from Jude, because we're told that it's from the same audience, if you go back and look at that, Peter's writing to just Christians. And based on the context, it's believed that it was a Jewish convert uh, audience. Jude writes to that exact same audience. And I've got to believe that when they get the, the letter from Jude, they're reading this and they're like, guys, wait a second, wait a second, Peter told us this, Right? They see the same thing jumping off the page, and here it is, a fulfillment that what Peter said is true, is spoken from God, and this has now happened. I believe that Jude saw these false teachers come into the church just as predicted, and under the Holy Spirit, he was provoked by a forceful, violent compulsion to write a letter because this needed immediate action. So this leads us to what the point of this is. He says to contend for the faith. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Judah's appealing to them to call, exhort, and he's begging them. That's what it means to contend for the faith. And again, we talked about that word to focus on. And the word that we get agonized from is what it means. It means to, to agonize in a fierce competition in order to win. It's that type of struggle, Right? We see it in a lot of different places. Jesus uses the word in Luke 13. He says, strive to enter the narrow gate. When Jesus is questioned by Pilate in John 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting. There the word is translated fighting. Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 1 as an athlete. In Colossians chapter 1 as struggling. So what, Peter, or what Jude is saying is that he wants them to strive, struggle, fight as athletes are to win for what? The faith. Now notice he doesn't say your faith. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to fight for what you believe in. No, he says, I want you to contend for the faith. And the faith is everything that comprised in what he originally said about the common salvation that they have in Christ. The faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ once for all delivered to the saints. Now we talked about this back in October, about the role of the apostles, that Jesus came and picked men, taught them, and then even prayed that we would believe in what they said. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that everyone went about house to house, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Over and over and over, what we see here is that this was a one-time thing. And Jude qualifies that as well as we look at verse 3. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all, that word in the Greek is used in Hebrews as well as in 1 Peter to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. I don't think this will be on the screen, but notice what Hebrews says about this. He compares the priest of the Old Covenant compared to Jesus and the difference between these sacrifices. In Hebrews 10, 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This faith is the gospel that was delivered once for all. In that, the Greek lexicon describes that once for all this way. He says it's a word used of what is so done as to be a perpetual validity and never need repetition once for all. So there's only one gospel, period. There is no other gospel. There's one gospel. Notice how Paul, what he says about this idea of a change in the gospel. Galatians 1, 6 Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice, not that there is another one. But there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But now watch this. But even if we, that is an apostle of Jesus Christ, the one who has the authority to proclaim this to you, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If you didn't hear it for the, the first time, notice what he says. And we've said it before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This faith has been proclaimed once for all, period. This is why I reject and you should reject any notion that there's new revelation from God. When Joseph Smith shows up with the Mormon movement and says, hey, God told me this and he gave me his word. No, he didn't because it was once for all delivered. When Muslims say Mohammed said this, no, he didn't. He does not speaking for God's in God's behalf. We're told once for all. All throughout scripture, nowhere do we see this idea that we're waiting for another prophet to come and speak for God besides Jesus coming back. But we are told over and over and over, beware of false teachers. There's no room for new revelation. Jude says, contend for the faith. Why? Why did he say that? Third point, because it has happened. What Peter has predicted has happened. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want us to focus on what Jude says about these people. Because if you're like me, we're going to have to get like, some, we can dismiss some of this because we have an idea of what he's talking about. And we think that idea is very obvious. He says they're ungodly people. And the definition for that word is a wicked person, especially, and this has to do with their outward actions. Now notice the word choice here. These ungodly, wicked people pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Now this word sensuality is used all throughout the scripture and almost Every single time has to do with sexual immorality. Your Bible might say licentiousness or a license to sin. They perverted this into a license to sin. The definition of that in the context is a conduct shocking to public decency. Now we might have a clue as to what's going on here. This is why it's important for us to see how Scripture is connected. That these aren't individual men writing their own thing. God is using these men to write His entire revelation. If we understand the second Peter is predicting what's happening to the same audience that Judah is talking to. Then look at Second Peter 3.15 with me. Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as your beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Now if you noticed in there, this idea that they're twisting to their own destruction. And the language points right back to what Jude is talking about. And it says that they're taking what Paul has said, the things that are hard to understand, and doing that with. Now, both Bible scholars, and I think we'd all agree, 
if we're going to classify Paul's writings and which ones are hard, we'd have to go to the book of Romans. There's some things in the book of Romans that are just difficult. We've been going through the book of Romans, and if you remember in chapter 6, we talked about this idea that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And this idea that sin does not have power over grace, that God's grace overtakes sin. So then there's some in there that are actually taking this idea that, well, if my sin brings about the grace of God then wouldn't more sin bring about more grace of God? And isn't that a good thing? This is why Paul asked the question, it won't be on the screen, but in Romans chapter 6 it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means, God forbid. Yet that is what some are alluding to. Now I don't know if this is exactly what was happening with this. I just find it interesting if we understand how they're connected that you can see what's going on here in these, these certain possibilities. But one thing's for sure, based on the illustrations that we will get into in the next few weeks, this sums up who these people were. Paul says this in Titus 1.16, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. What they say sounds good. Now I would argue it's wrong, but it sounds good. Yet their actions are the furthest thing from it. Again, we're going to talk about that in detail as we look at those different stories. But I couldn't help but think, this should have been prevented. This shouldn't have happened. These aren't people that are just in the church. These are teachers, preachers, pastors in the church. And of the Old Testament illustrations, we come to the conclusion there's two main themes within those illustrations that these false teachers are described as living sexually immoral lives and being lovers of money. Now I say it should have been avoided because if you remember as we walked through the qualifications of a pastor, this stuff is laid out in there. Again, these are not just random people in the church. And I think we can write that off like, well, there's always crazy people. No, these are people teaching in the church. These are pastors in the church. And we're not going to go there, but if you remember 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well as Titus chapter 2, you see the qualifications of an overseer, pastor, a bishop, those types of things. And what two things jump out? That you must be the husband of one wife, meaning that you are a faithful, sexually moral person, and that you cannot be a lover of money or greedy for gain. Yet what are we told these false teachers were doing? Living sexually immoral lives and they're lovers of money. This should never have happened. Should never have happened. So that leads us to the final question. How did this happen then? How could this have happened? How were these men teachers in the church? How can someone who denies Jesus be a pastor of a church? And how can it happen so close to the start of the church? We know that these people, they might have seen the miracles of Jesus, but they most definitely saw the miracles of the apostles. They were saved into a genuine faith, and now they're following these men that do not line up. How in the world does this happen? You know, how can you live a life like that? And we tend to overlook actions because of certain things. And those certain things, it's pretty foolish, but it happens. And if we be honest and we reflect for a second, people can say things in a way that... They can turn God's command into maybe a suggestion, right? They can turn God's clear-cut thing into like, well, it could apply this way as well. And we can overlook some of these sins because the person, what they're saying sounds really good. Maybe I'm the one who misunderstood what God said. We're warned of this. Peter warns us of this in 2 Peter 2.3, again, the same audience. He says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Paul says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. That's how the false teachers are depicted. Now notice how the apostles were depicted. 
Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 1.5, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In chapter 2 he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. There's a very distinct difference between these. The apostles come with godly lifestyles that they proved by their actions, and they spoke the words of truth plainly and simply. The false teachers come with smooth, flattery words that deceive you, and their lives are far from the truth. Our actions matter. But I mentioned earlier, I don't want us to dismiss the warning, because I think when we think of this, and someone who denies Jesus, we think of the crazy stories. right? I had a professor in seminary that said his professor in seminary stood up, took the Bible in his hand, threw it on the ground, and said, this is not God's word. I was talking to Pastor Jason uh, this week, too, and he told me that there was a church his dad went to one time, and the pastor did the same thing, took the Bible and threw it on the ground. And I think we think of those people, you know, as like, maybe that's what he's talking about. And then we almost dismiss it because that's kind of obvious, right? You can tell if this is a false teacher. They're flat out denying. They come right out and say, Jesus isn't God. He isn't the Messiah. He isn't Savior. He was just a man. But that's not what Jude's talking about. That's not what he's warning us about. Remember what he said. He said they crept in unnoticed. And it literally means they came in by stealth. Your Bible might say that they secretly slipped in or they wormed their way in. In Peter's prediction, it says they will come among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is who Jesus spoke about in Matthew 7, 15, where he says, Beware of false prophets who come, excuse me, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like us, they talk like us, and they even act like us. But they're not like us. They're liars, and they're here to deceive and to twist and distort the gospel of Christ. Why? Because they're not of Christ. Jude isn't talking about those who just come right out and deny Jesus, even though they do, but they're much more sly about it. They're much more crafty. They're much more cunning. Think of what Jesus says about them. There's a reason that they, they do these things, because again, they're not of Christ, and Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Look at verse 44. He says, You are of your father the devil. And your will, is not to, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is what Jude is warning us about. And Paul also was concerned in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. See, these false teachers, as we're going to see in these next few weeks, are preaching that there's no judgment on sin. There's no condemnation. Yet they're not just coming out and saying it that way. right? Those are obvious. They're not coming out and questioning God's authority in the most abrupt and abrasive way. They're very sly about that. And I couldn't help but think, as I was looking at what, what Paul says here about the serpent uh, deceiving Eve. And i got to be clear on this. We're not told a lot about this story. And we've we got to be careful when we try to interject maybe what we think is happening. But I was just, I want to share just the, some of the thought that I thought of how that scenario worked out. Because we're told that the devil was the most crafty and cunning of all creation. And he caused Eve to sin in a world where there was no sin. And the conversation is very, very short. And so I just thought, what would that have been like? So here he questions Eve, you know, you can't eat of anything. And, and Eve's like, no, we're told there's only one tree we can't eat of or we will surely die. And what does he say? You're not surely going to die. The same lie we've always been told. There's no judgment, right? And based off of that one phrase, which I think there must have been more going on, 
She says that she looks and sees it's good for food, a delight to the eyes, and that it's good for wisdom. And so she takes it. And I had to just think for a moment of what would have went through her mind maybe. Here she says, no, God says you will surely die. And the devil's like, we're not really going to die. God just knows that when you eat of it, you're going to become like him, like a God. And I wonder if Eve asked this question. What is death, right? There's no death before sin. She lived in a creation where there was no death. There was no judgment on sin. None of that existed. Yet she was told by God that this would happen if she disobeyed. But yet the devil's like, no, nah, you misunderstand. That's not really what's going to happen. God is keeping something from you. And I just wonder if maybe she thought, well, if God is keeping me from something, this is his perfect creation. I'm allowed to eat of everything. There's only one tree. And if he doesn't want me to eat it because I'll be like him, wouldn't he try to scare me with something I don't know? Now, she sinned. She disobeyed God. But it's interesting that nowhere in the New Testament do people attack her for that. They don't attack Adam for that. She was deceived by Satan. And I have to wonder why the words are so harsh against Christians that fall into this and not towards Adam and Eve is because they weren't warned the way we are warned. They lived in a perfect sinless state. Now, they disobeyed God's direct command because they were deceived. Adam wasn't, and we told that. But Eve was deceived in what, how he said it. But you and I, we've seen the judgment of God play out. We know it's going to happen, and we've been warned to look out for these false teachers. There's a reason there's such a harsh... You know, Paul says, I can't, you foolish Galatians, how could you do this? We told you it was going to happen. And I, just, I just find that interesting. The reality of it is, and I just want to make sure we understand, we, again, I don't think there's people up here to say, today saying there is no judgment, right? God won't punish sin. Because that directly, it's like, wait a second, you're saying words that are completely different. But we hear it a little bit different, and it means the exact same thing. We hear it all the time. God wouldn't send anyone to hell. That's not the loving God I know. And though we wrestle with maybe how that plays out, what you're doing is you're denying the need of a Savior. You're denying Him Himself for what He actually said. To say that God's a loving God and He wouldn't do that. I've heard people say that, you know, there's no way this sweet old lady gets to the end of her life and just because she doesn't believe in Jesus, God would send her to hell. Do you realize how distorted that is? The implication that there's this innocent, pure person who just doesn't know about Jesus, that doesn't exist, right? That is not a reality. We are all sinners, and we've all fallen short, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And the lie sounds good, but it's so far from the truth. You and I deserve eternal damnation. You and I deserve the judgment of God that will come, but our God loves us so much that he gives us this free gift in Christ. Who are you to reject that and pretend that what he said isn't so? When I hear people say, that's not the God I know, I have to think, there's only one. Do you know him or not? The reality of it is the Bible is very clear, and as we'll see in these next few weeks, judgment is coming, and you will stand before God. And as we heard on the men's retreat too, you're going to stand either by yourself or with the blood of Jesus covering you. What Jesus said is that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he said. And we are to be aware of these false teachers. They will not jump up and say the most outrageous thing. They will creep in and say things that look right. But we're to look at their lifestyle. We're to look at how they actually act and what they actually say. And we're not to follow any other distortion of the gospel. 
So how do we do in all this that we're to defend? We're to defend this faith. We're to contend for it. But if we're to contend in an agonizing fight in order to win, and you don't know what it is you're fighting for, how long are you going to last? Not very long. How long are our kids going to last when all they've ever heard is just the name of Jesus mentioned right in our house? We're to contend for the faith. In order to do that, we've got to know what it means, and we've got to stand on it, and we've got to reject anything that is otherwise said. I'm going to ask the praise team to come, and if you would, bow your heads with me as we just reflect on this. I hope today that we got to see God's love for us and his prediction of what's going to happen, warning us of what's actually going to take place, and giving us the tools and the means to actually um, defend against these types of things. And I know there's many of us that are actually very, we, we get caught up in some of this, and we've heard things that make us question the truth because it sounds so good. And I hope today the warning forces us to dive back into the scriptures to really know what does it actually say. Jesus is the word of God. What did he say? You can't take one part of it that you like and hold it as true and then reject the other part. Who are you to determine what truth is? He's truth. And as we pray, I just, I, I got I to gotta assume that maybe not everyone's in the same place. And maybe you're hearing about Jesus for the first time. You've heard that he loves you, but you don't really know why. The reality of it is, is we've all sinned. We're accountable to our creator. And though we deserve eternal damnation and separation because of our sin, he offers a free gift that you don't have to work for because he did all the work for you. We're told that he died for our sin and then he gave us his righteousness so that we can stand before God for all of eternity in perfection because of what he did. How do you receive that? You call on him. That's all you got to do. I'm told if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I pray if you haven't done that, that today you would do that. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it all fits together. We thank you for how plainly and simply it's written so that anyone can understand. And God, most of all, we thank you for the love that you do have for us. And though the lie sounds like it is, if you're more loving a different way, God, we understand what's going on. God, we sinned against you, and you paid that price for us. We failed and failed so many times, yet you live perfectly for us. And one day we'll stand in heaven with our belief in you, given crowns for the life that you earned. And yet we'll be able to give them back to you. God, I just, I'm so thankful for what you've done. I pray today if there's someone here that's struggling, someone doesn't know you, that you would open their eyes to the truth and give them the faith to believe that you are who you say you are. And God, I pray for everyone else in the room that we would just have this desire and this encouragement and just a, just a courage to fight and to fight hard, to agonize for the faith and not allow anything to creep into our churches that is contrary to what you've said in your word. There's only one gospel, and it's the one that you delivered to us. God, be with us now as we respond through song. Have your way in our hearts, Lord. We want to give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.